Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ernie Isley is one of the younger Isley brothers. His older brothers had already had hits by the time he was a teenager. But really, it only took him one show to get hooked on the show business experience. I started playing drums, though, at age of 12. And I did my first live gig with my older brothers when I was 14 in Philadelphia. And uh, Martha and the Vandellas were on the show. They didn't have a drummer. So I played with them, too, you know, dancing in the street, heat wave and all that stuff. And in between the two acts, my eldest brother Kelly handed me a $50 bill and told me to go get a hot dog. So I'm like, my God. So I'm 14 years old, $50 bill, still got my stage stuff on it. Go through the backstage doors, and when the doors swing open, all of these girls my same age start screaming at me like I'm Justin Bieber. Jim, he was just up there. Oh, you know, he plays so well. He's so cute. Da, 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 da. Uh, you go to school down here. Uh, what's your phone number? And I was like, man, I need to move to Philly. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Ernie, the legendary guitarist and songwriter for the Isley Brothers, about how the band managed to thrive for so many years and reinvent their sound over decades with songs like Who's That Lady and It's Your Thing. We'll also talk about the message behind their song, Fight the Power. It's a a call to uh, personal freedom, personal expression. It doesn't mean that the other person has to like it. I mean, who cares? I'll go in my own style, at my own pace, as my actual self, without apology. And about a guy you might have heard of who lived at the Isleys' house for a while, Jimi Hendrix. But first, I'll talk to the director, Brad Bird, who helmed The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. His feature debut was 1999's The Iron Giant. We'll talk about why The Iron Giant was an unusual choice for an animated feature film. It's about a robot during the Cold War. Uh, that, that was not a big topic for animated films, uh, particularly at that time. Um, everything was to be a musical based on a very familiar old fairy tale. That, that's what you were supposed to do in animation. Plus, I'll tell you about what the Pope's visit to America meant to me. Although I kind of feel like I should warn you in advance that it has almost nothing to do with the Pope and is pretty dumb. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So Brad Bird didn't really wait very long to pursue his dreams. He started his first animated film at 11. When he finished it at 13, he decided to mail it off to some of his heroes at Disney. One of them wrote back. Bird ended up a teenager being mentored by Milt Call, one of Disney's legendary nine old men. His incredible career includes eight seasons at The Simpsons, the Pixar films Ratatouille and The Incredibles, and the live-action features Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and Tomorrowland. His first feature in 1999 was The Iron Giant. It's a Cold War allegory about a boy who finds a huge robot that's hurtled to Earth. The robot seems to have been built for combat, but the fall through the atmosphere leaves it childlike. 
uh, battle ensues. Is the Iron Giant a weapon that must be destroyed, or is it a friend that must be shown kindness? Let's hear a clip from the film. Hogarth, the little boy, talks to the Iron Giant for the first time after he's found him in a power transformer station, uh, biting into a power line and becoming electrocuted. So, where are you from? You came from the sky, right? From up there? Don't you remember anything? Hmm. Maybe it's that bump on your head. Do you talk? You know, words, blah, 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 like that. Can you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Well, you get the idea anyway. Let's see. See this? This is called a rock. Rock. is a tree. Rock, tree. Get it? (laughs) That's right! Well, my own giant robot, I am now the luckiest kid in America. Brad Bird, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to get to talk to you. Great. It's great to be here. So I guess the, the first question is, after after all this time has passed, you've had such extraordinary successes. So why are you here talking about this film that relatively few people watched? Well, I think you've answered the question right there is very few people saw it on its first release. And um, when we came out, uh, we kind of came out without a lot of uh, pre-advertising. Um, when you say we, you're, you're referring to the film in yourself collectively? I'm referring to our team that made the film because I didn't Got make it. it by myself. We d- we came out into the marketplace and there wasn't a lot of advance uh, notice. We opened very <laughs> – a nice way to say it would be quietly. Um, <laughs> uh, people didn't really know what it was. Some people thought it was a Japanese film because it had a big robot in it. And uh, we kind of came and went very quickly. And it was uh, very sad for us because um, we had worked really hard on the film. We had um, a faster schedule and a lower budget than um, a lot of the other animated films that were being made at the time. But we at the same time, had a, a tremendous amount of freedom. So we could really um, make something and get it to the screen without a lot of um, second guessing. And it was a very rare opportunity, and we knew it. The very thing that allowed us to make uh, a film that is not really like any other animated films from that time, I mean, you you use the words Cold War. That's not... Uh, that that was not a big topic for animated films, uh, particularly at that time. Um, everything was to be a musical based on a very familiar old fairy tale. That That's what you were supposed to do in animation. So we were coming in with a period piece from 1957 with the Cold War as a backdrop. You know, it was a very unusual film. There wasn't uh, songs in the sense of a musical in it. We had some old rock and roll songs from the period, but... 
um, we were an atypical film, and uh, that allowed us uh, to the very thing that allowed us to make the film the way we did also meant that the you know I think the studio didn't have many expectations for animation at the time, and then they were kind of surprised when it came together uh, well. You know, they offered to uh, delay the release of it, and I was stupidly, I was like, no, we got great test scores, you know, just put it out. And and, uh, we opened, and very few people really know what we were. So not very many people saw it on the big screen in, in its release. In the 16 years since, the film has really benefited from word of mouth. You had had some really incredible gigs by that point in your career. Um, I mean, you know, when you were in when you were in school, you made a short that was produced by Steven Spielberg. You had worked at Disney, which I'm sure as a kid was, you know, as a as an animator, as a child, I'm sure was like the ultimate dream. You had helped shape uh, you had helped shape The Simpsons. But The Iron Giant was still your first um, feature film. Yeah, was your first feature film as a director. Did you just have the thought, like, in in week one or week two, like, no one is ever going to give me the $100 million that it takes to make a movie again? <laughs> oh, you mean uh, when it didn't uh, play? Well, yeah. I don't know. The weird thing is, is we got great reviews, and again, when people saw it, they really liked it. And, and I, I never really felt terrible about it. I mean, I, I was kind of devastated that people weren't didn't seem to know what it was and they weren't giving it a shot but movies stick around and you know a lot of my favorite films were not necessarily successes on their original release you know wizard of oz didn't become a success until the late 50s when they started running it in on tv um because it was a very expensive movie to make. Pinocchio is is adjusted for inflation. One of the most successful films ever made was a not a hit on its first release. You know, so there are a lot of films like that 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 I love that that take a while for whatever reason to get into the public consciousness. But this film seems to be doing that, so I'm really happy about that. I was one of those folks who went and saw the movie and applauded at the end in the theaters in 1998 or 1999 or whatever that was. Um, and I hadn't seen the film since my younger brothers were kids, which is, you know, maybe 10 years at least. Right. Um, and I went to see a screening uh, with my son the other day. And, you know, I remember that there was a sort of an element of a kind of an elegiac tone, you know. Um, but what I hadn't fully remembered was uh, how sad the sadness is. And I don't think that there had been a lot of, and, you know, it's it ends on a hopeful note. Like, I don't want people to think it's a super bummer. No, I think it's kind of uplifting sadness, though, isn't it? It is. But I, I, I think that sadness was something that at that time, like real sadness, was rarely a part of, animated films, especially animated films for kids, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and hadn't been since, I don't know, the 50s or 60s. Well, I think about the Pinocchio has tremendous sadness in it, though, and Bambi has sadness in it. And and, uh, a lot of the great Disney films have have those moments, you know, and and it's a thing that a lot of people shy away from, because if you fail in trying to be kind of open with your emotions. If you get caught at it or something like that, there's nowhere to hide. So 
people end up adopting a very sarcastic tone and and kind of winking at the audience saying, you know, don't worry, I don't take this seriously. And I, I think that while, you know, that that's a legitimate place to come from, it's uh, it's also sort of safe. And I, I feel like my, my favorite films are films that, uh, you know, weather hard on their sleeve a little more and, you know, take a chance with those moments. Were you nervous about it at all? Nervous? Of course. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, when you, you know, I, I, there's a moment towards the end of the film where the giant says um, Superman. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen it, but... Um, I remember writing that moment and hesitating when the, the idea came to me to have that little moment within the moment. And I hesitated because I thought, look, if I fail at this, this is not going to be <laughs> nice. And then I just went, screw it. You know, I'm feeling something, you know, so maybe someone else will, too. When we showed those moments in our editing room, we kind of had this um, very scruffy uh, practice of bringing all the department heads in, jamming into the editing room, you know, which was like cramming people into a phone booth, you know, in the 50s. And uh, we played those some of those moments in the moment in the junkyard where Hogarth is talking to the giant about uh, death and um there was a feeling in the room at the time, you know, with people, um, even though this, it was rough story sketches and, you know, very unfinished, um, people were getting quiet and we knew that we were on to something. I want to play another clip from The Iron Giant and my guest is the film's director, Brad Bird, who's also directed numerous other monstrously successful films. You know, it's a, it's a killer robot who falls to earth and loses his identity as a killer when he hits the ground. And he responds to threats by kind of going back to a primal programming of kind of moving into battle mode, so to speak. And, and in this scene, the robot is in battle mode and Hogarth has just found him and is trying to... Talk him out of it. Exactly. lovely thing about the allegory in the film, I think, at least for me, is we see the government and society reacting to this potential threat violently and and essentially creating the threat in so doing. I haven't read the book. Well, it's very the... it's very different than the book. Um, the book was something that Pete Townsend of The Who and Des Mackinoff, who's a, a really great uh, director and producer for... Uh, 
um, theatrical enterprises, and he's done some movies. Anyway, they brought it to Warner Brothers to do as an animated musical because um, Pete had loved that story, which is very well regarded in, in England. And in the Eng- England, it's called The Iron Man, which they didn't call here because of the Marvel properties. But the book starts uh, – Hogarth has two parents and um, – the giant giant rises from the sea. There's no uh, implication that he comes from space, and the film um, starts off with a with a relationship between Hogarth and the giant, and then it becomes the giant a, a sort of uh, contest between the giant and a, a, and a space bat the size of Australia, and they kind of um, fly uh, back and forth into the sun. It's sort of a competition of who can withstand the heat and and stuff like that. And it's very poetic and beautiful. But uh, when I read the book, I sort of uh, had a different direction I wanted to go. I I felt like um, the book kind of uh, would make a better movie if it stayed uh, between Hogarth and the giant. And um, I came back to Warner Brothers and I said, I really like this property, but I want to do something different with it. And I said, what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun? And they really clicked to that idea. You know, to their credit, they clicked to that idea. That doesn't sound like a a big uh, animated movie pitch, you know, It, it they reacted to it simply as a movie premise. And, you know, they were using the same kind of uh, thinking that they did when they judged a live-action film, which which I found really great and refreshing. And I think that what what we were trying to do is just talk about uh, we all have the potential for destruction within us, and we all have the potential for many other things that we can put our energies to, and it depends what we choose to, which uh, flame we fan, you know? When you're working now, do you still feel the pressure of the fact that anytime you're working on something that involves tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars of someone else's money, it can just go? Like it can just disappear or change or, you know? Well, yeah, sure. You feel responsibility. You know, I don't want um, anyone who bets on me to lose money in the deal. You know, I'm, I want it to be successful for a lot of reasons. But selfishly, I, I want it to succeed so that I get another chance to go up to bat because I love movies and I love making movies and I love um, studying movies and getting lost in, in movies. Um, I love all of the arts and movies to me are kind of a salad bar of the arts because it has every other art in it. And um, I just, uh, you know, it's... I'm incredibly lucky to be able to work in this medium that I love. And and so, yeah, you feel pressure and you feel responsibility, but it's not a science. It's it's this weird kind of dream language that kind of rewards instinct. And um, businessmen don't like to hear that. They want to feel like it's as set as as making a widget you know each unit costs this much and each unit makes this much profit and they come out you know we can make this many widgets per hour i mean that's the that's a businessman's mentality and yet this business is somewhere between dreaming and gambling and and it's it's much more rewards 
uh, more intuitive feel. So if you ask me what people are going to like the world over of all nationalities and all cultures and all ages, what they're going to like several years from now, I have no idea. I, I wouldn't. I would probably just curl up into a fetal ball if that was given to me that way as as my assignment. But if you ask me, you know, do you have anything that you would really love to see on a big screen? You know, then I can then now we're in business. Yes, I do. I have many ideas that I think would be really cool movies. And, and you know, I can imagine sitting in a theater and crunching some popcorn and, and getting absorbed in, in these ideas. And so um, what becomes an impossible task suddenly becomes doable if you just think about it in terms of I'm making something that I myself would want to see. And a lot of people think that animation, you know, because uh, it's, it, it's been, I think, discussed improperly as a children's medium. It's just a medium. You know, you can do any kind of story with it. You could make an animated movie about divorce if you wanted to, and it would there would be many ways to approach it that live action couldn't do. I don't make, you know, any of these films for, for kids. I, I, I make them for me. This is the way I'd like to spend two hours. This is, I'd enjoy watching this. And you just hope that other people have a similar taste or, you know, um, you can't really, if, if you make movies for any audience that doesn't include you, then I think you're in real trouble. I'll continue my conversation with Brad Bird after a break. We'll talk about his eight seasons of work on The Simpsons. He helped shape the show's look and feel. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. What's the meaning of work, and when does being an amateur trump experience? The TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, and new ways to think and create. Find the TED Radio Hour podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Hal. And we're the hosts of We Got This. The show that offers definitive answers to dumb debates that you suggest. Every Wednesday, we discuss the hot-button topics you never knew you cared so much about, like whether you should put ketchup on a hot dog. What's the best Star Wars movie? Whether it's better to be too hot or too cold. Coke or Pepsi? Best Marvel movie. Which is the best religion? I told you we're not doing that one. So join us every week on MaximumFun.org. And don't worry, everyone. We got this. We got this. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Brad Bird, who directed The Iron Giant, Ratatouille, and The Incredibles, among other films. He also served as a creative consultant on The Simpsons during its first eight seasons. So in in watching Ratatouille and The Incredibles, um, your two Pixar films, um, you know, they're both substantially about finding the courage to be remarkable, whatever is remarkable about you, um, not fading into the crowd and so on and so forth. And I found myself thinking, like, doesn't Brad Bird ever just think he's a fraud? (laughs) Only every day. (laughs) Doesn't everybody think they're a fraud to some level? I mean, you just think, uh, you know, hey, I'm just bumbling my way ahead, and I hope I don't crash into anything, right? I mean, I don't know. I think that. Yeah, I think that too. I think everybody <laughs> relates. If you want to make everybody connect with a character, 
just make the character an outsider. And everyone privately feels that they're an outsider. And, you know, people may know it or may not, but everyone, I think, feels like an outsider. So, sure, I have the same feelings that anyone else has. I I think that I really like it when when people kind of defy the uh, status quo vibe that you must settle down and go into your corner and, and um, you know, not make any noise. Uh, I, I like people that step out of it and shake it up. Before we're out of time, I want to talk a little bit about The Simpsons uh, because it's, you know, yeah, it's one of the greatest things ever, basically. <laughs> Um, so you were, your job on The Simpsons, as I understand it, was a sort of, uh, consultant or producer whose job it was to take these very sophisticated, you know, uh, scripts, dense scripts, um, that were, you know, especially by the second or third year, like among the best that had ever been written for television. Yeah. And help guide the people who are making them into animations. Yeah, make them work visually. And the weird thing is is that we had no time, which is not weird. It's very normal for TV. But many of the people who, who uh, when they first did the show, the people who were putting them together visually uh, were from television. And a lot of them were educated in sort of um, Saturday morning kind of animation. And it didn't take very long to to say, well, this isn't Saturday morning. These are about these are about a thousand times more sophisticated in terms of their stories. There's A stories, there's B stories. Sometimes there's even C stories, and there's about forty five minutes of material in every twenty two minutes, because these things would go like lightning, and they would have a lot of ideas in them. The show was lucky in that we had some great directors uh, uh, right off the bat who had worked on The Simpsons on Tracy Ullman, David Silverman and Wes Archer, and they knew what they were uh, doing. But the machine was largely manned by people who were, had learned on, on these very simple shows visually. they would Every show would have kind of medium shots and every time you had a new location, it would open with an establishing shot. And there was not very much imagination in how they were visualized. So I told the storyboard artist, look, man, you're making films. And, and we were making them quickly, but you need to look at filmmakers. You know, Look at Kubrick. And, and Kubrick encountered something like this in this film. And, and look at this moment and see how he approached it. And I know we're doing something goofy, but if you understand what Kubrick's doing over here, that'll help you with the comedy of, of what we're doing. And suddenly the storyboard people, instead of looking at it like a, a drudge, looked at it as, wow, I'm, I get to do film and get it out quickly. And, you know, the scripts were so clever and ambitious that um, people really got into it. The animation isn't sophisticated as, as movement, but the filmmaking, I think, is, is pretty terrific in, the, in those episodes. And, you know, we were blessed with a wonderful set of artists and directors and uh, storyboard artists who really um, took advantage of that opportunity. So it was, for me, it was like a boot camp because uh, there were so many stories done in a short amount of time that I learned a tremendous amount of, of trusting your gut. And that really helped me when it came time to do Iron Giant because we had to move fast, even though we had a pretty ambitious film. So what is what is a moment visually on The Simpsons that 
you had some particular input into that you're really proud of? Oh man, I, I you know you're talking about eight seasons, so I don't know. It's like how many is that? Like a hundred and seventy episodes, or I have no idea. That's a tough one. I'll just tell you moments that I really like, um, and and there's a cinematic moment that is really terrific. Uh, Jim Ridden directed an episode where um, Itchy and Scratchy are taken off the air, and it has a strange response in that suddenly kids like discover life outside and what it's like to to play you know it would be almost like nowadays like taking away their iPhones but there's there's this moment where they kind of instead of watching uh you know cartoons after school they they go outside and and they basically have this renaissance and there's these long pans of kids frolicking and throwing frisbees and swinging and doing all this stuff and and just the visual uh the way the visuals worked with the music there i think are really wonderful because um there's a timing and a stylization to um the kids opening the doors of their houses and kind of discovering <laughs> the outside for the first time and and i just think it's really funny it's a funny idea and i think that it was storyboarded very well and jim did a great job directing it but that was uh something i remember discussing that stuff with jim and and saying that here's a great opportunity i mean it was in the script it was just a matter of taking it you couldn't do uh, uh hanna barbera kind of stuff with those ideas. You had to bump it up. I remember also that when they did the parody of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is Rainier Wolfcastle as McBain, I remember fighting because those films um, are shot, action sequences are shot with a lot of cameras. So there's a lot of coverage, and which means when something blows up, they'll cut to like six, seven, eight different camera angles to stretch the explosion out. And that's the kind of thing that animation houses on television absolutely hated because you were using a lot of layouts in a very short amount of time. But, you know, fortunately, I had the support of Gracie Films and and I said, look, the comedy of this is that these overproduced action movies have, you know, 20 cameras filming these explosions and we should make fun of that. So they indulged us and we did a, a ton of layouts. For in a very short amount of time, we blew through uh, a lot of layouts, which is something that you're not supposed to do in TV animation. But we did it, and at the time, it was not like anything on TV animation because we went, we we did the full Monty, you know. I was watching a, maybe a season two or three uh, episode of The Simpsons recently, and I was struck by. Um, How crude was, they are! <laughs> no, no, no. Well, they, they, I mean, the, the, the animation is kind of crude. You know, the, the character designs aren't as uh, you know consistent and shiny as they are later. But, right, right. Um, but what I was struck by was there was I think it was a Mr. Burns episode, and there was a shot of Mr. Burns in his office that was uh, shot from or drawn from a low angle sort yeah. of Citizen Kane style, right. and it occurred to me like, oh, right, like. You don't ever see you don't ever see any shot in a in a Yogi Bear cartoon that's from any angle other than eye level. <laughs> exactly. And the interesting thing is if you look in the very first season in the very first episodes that feature Burns, he has a crappy little office with a low ceiling and just a tiny very standard office and and I remember um 
I think it started with the first episode of season two that was Wes Archer episode. And I said, why do do we have to stick with this office? Can't we make it like he's like a powerful guy? Let's make something that just reads of power. And so I um, suggested the the big window with the cooling towers outside the window. And they jumped on the idea. And, and that became his office a- after that. Um, that was one of the pleasures of, of that uh, show is that it had so many opportunities for things. And if you if you did something and it worked, it kind of became the new thing. You know what I mean? So you could invent the office and that would be the setting of many scenes to come, you know, because you're always going to be dealing with Burns. And there's a whole universe in that show that's really interesting. Let's hear a clip from the first episode that you directed. Uh, it's episode 12 of season one called Krusty Gets Busted. <laughs> um, and what we're about to hear is the opening of the Krusty the Clown show. And, and uh, we see the Bart and Lisa watching. Kids, who do you love? <laughs> How much do you love me? With all our hearts. What would you do we if kill I went off the air? We kill ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Sideshow Bob? This is Brittany, and today's her birthday. Well, happy birthday, Brittany. How do you want to celebrate? Do you want me to sing your birthday song? <laughs> or do you want me to shoot Sideshow Bob out of a cannon? <laughs> the cannon! The cannon! The cannon! The cannon! The cannon! Sorry, Sideshow Bob, but it's her special birthday wish! (laughs) (laughs) Doom, Sideshow Bob. I know we haven't had much luck shooting you out of this cannon, but maybe that's because we haven't used enough gunpowder. Brittany, do the honors. Don't blame me. I didn't do it. <laughs> Comedy, my name is Krusty. I, yes. Man, <laughs> I've forgotten about who do you love. Yes, exactly. It's a very <laughs> twisted like view of... Twelve comedy writers in a room just being like... <laughs> yeah. Well, what was what funny, too, is... Need? What was funny, too, is that um, Matt Groening, who created The Simpsons, and I are both grew up in Oregon. And I said early on, I said to Matt, is, is Krusty based on Rusty Nails? And he goes, you know Rusty Nails? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm from Oregon. It, he was like a clown in, in Portland. He did little comedy routines and stuff like that. And, and uh, it's a very – it's not Rusty Nails. It's a very twisted, you know, crazy version of, of – uh, inspired by Rusty Nails. But um, that was a very particular – he tickles me, you know, Krusty tickles me because of that weird connection. Well, he also is the such a you know he's such a perfect representation of the kind of shambolic dreams of a comedy performer. Right, <laughs> shambolic. I like it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, he's such a disaster. Like he just wants someone to love him. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, later on, uh, you know, they did the jazz singer episode, which was really cool. Well, Brad, I really appreciate you uh, spending all this time with us. It was really thanks. Great My pleasure. Time. Brad Bird uh, is the director of, among many other films, 1999's The Iron Giant, which 
is uh, in theaters as a special event uh, on digital uh, download for the first time ever and coming in a special Blu-ray package. His other work includes Years on the Simpsons, the Pixar films Ratatouille and the Simpsons, excuse me, Ratatouille, the Pixar films Ratatouille. Oh, it's all blurring together in a big blob, isn't it? The overproduced action film, uh, which is beloved by fans like myself of overproduced action films. It's not overproduced. Uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. It produced um, just right. Um, and, and numerous others, Brad. Th- thanks again. Thank you. Brad Bird uh, is the director of, among many other films, 1999's The Iron Giant, which is uh, in theaters as a special event uh, on digital uh, download for the first time ever and coming in a special Blu-ray package. His other work includes Years on the Simpsons, the Pixar films Ratatouille and the Simpsons, excuse me, (laughs) Ratatouille, the Pixar films Ratatouille. Oh, it's all blurring together in a big blob, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> the overproduced action film, uh, which is beloved by fans like myself of overproduced action films. It's not overproduced. Uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. It produced um, just right. <laughs> um, and, and numerous others, Brad. Th- thanks again. Thank you. Brad Bird. His 1999 film, The Iron Giant, was just remastered. It's got a couple of scenes that weren't in the original. It's now available as what they're calling a signature edition. You can find it in all of your usual internet places, VOD. And in 2016, it'll be available on Blu-ray and DVD. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The Isley Brothers' first hit was Shout. Rock and roll was new, soul was newer, and Ernie Isley was seven years old. It was 1959. You know you make me wanna shout, kick my heels up and shout, throw my hands up and shout, throw my head back and shout. Come on now, don't forget to say you will. Don't forget to say yeah, 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 yeah. Say you will. Say it right now, baby. In the 60s, they had Twist and Shout and a run with Motown. For a while, Jimi Hendrix was their lead guitarist and lived in their mom's spare room. Then in 1969, they reintroduced themselves to the world. They weren't a singing group anymore. They were a band with little brother Ernie on bass. The song was It's Your Thing. Isley, brother Marvin Isley, and brother-in-law Chris Jasper reinvigorated the band, starting in the early 70s. Ernie moved from bass to guitar, and his sound was key to the family's revival. They were the rare R&B group which featured raw, extended guitar solos. The Isley brothers had a nearly unparalleled run of hits, starting with It's Your Thing and continuing into the mid-80s. In fact, they're the only group in popular music who've charted in every decade since the 50s, and their influence extends far beyond their own original recordings. They've also been the basis of hip-hop hits, too, like Bone Thugs' Crossroads, Ice Cube's It Was a Good Day, and Kendrick Lamar's hit from last year, 
I. box set collects the Isley Brothers records from the end of the 1960s through the beginning of the 1980s, along with some of the early vocal albums. Ernie Isley is my guest on the show. Ernie Isley, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, man. Glad to be here. So do you remember when Shout hit, like what it was like for you and your family? Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, nothing uh, sounded like that song on the radio. Uh, nothing sounds like it now, and it uh, f- from the beginning that song was a uh, has been a crowd pleaser. When my brothers would do it, the way they would do it uh, live, it was a showstopper. It was the song. It was their first national breakthrough hit, but it was also the song that made them a headliner because nobody, and I mean nobody, wanted wanted to follow them or could follow them. If they said, oh, no, put the Isleys on in front of us. Or when they would do Shout, it'd be like maybe like 45 minutes before the next act could come on, whoever that was, <laughs> because it's pandemonium. And so it's like, you know, there was a lot of folks that would be like, well, <clears throat> I know I, I, I heard that uh, Otis Redding said, uh, I'm not going to be trying to follow them three guys. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not taking no prisoners, so, you know, they're... They got that song. They got, they got that song, and they got Twist and Shout, too, at that time. Like, I'm not going to try to follow them guys. Did you always intend to join the family business? No. Um, I was growing up, I was trying to play uh, Little League Baseball center field. I was um, riding my bike, going to school. You know, there's all kind of things to to be introduced to as a, as a kid that are new and exciting. And music was just one of them. I started playing drums though at age of twelve, and uh, did my first live gig with my older brothers when I was fourteen in Philadelphia. Martha and the Vandellas were on the show. They didn't have a drummer, so I played with them too. You know, dancing the street, heat wave, and all that stuff. And in between the two acts, <clears throat> my eldest brother Kelly handed me a fifty-dollar bill and told me to go get a hot dog. <laughs> I'm like, my God. So I'm 14 years old, $50 bill, still got my stage stuff on. Go through the backstage doors, and when the doors swing open, all of these girls my same age start screaming at me like I'm Justin Bieber. Ah, Sam, he was just up there. Oh, you know, he plays so well. He's so cute. Uh, you go to school down here. Uh, what's your phone number? And I was like, man, I need to move to Philly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get that kind of action in my school. <laughs> and, you know, the environment of the show and all that, I was like, man, this is a real rush, you know? It seems to me like there were a few moments when the band really asserted its identity, and, and the first was It's Your Thing, which was the big hit single that came out of leaving Motown Records. So your older brothers had been had been signed to Motown for a few years and had had, I mean, I had had a big hit in this old heart of mine, among other mm-hmm. records. But when you're a vocal group signed to Motown, you're never going to be the Temptations of the Four Tops. And it seemed like it's your thing on which you played. It was the first big hit that you played on. 
was a song that was like that was explicitly about you know we're not part of this machine anymore we're going to we're going to do our own thing yeah that was the way some people interpreted yes and um no one that was ever signed to Motown and had success at Motown if they should leave that was the kiss of death to their career proverbially speaking the first group to defy that was Isley Brothers because they left and started their own label on T-Neck Records and the first record on it was in the spring of 1969 was It's Your Thing. I want to play one of my favorite Isley Brothers records. Um, it's from one of my favorite Isley Brothers LPs which is given it back from 1971. And you know we were talking about the ways that you and your brothers kind of asserted your identities. And, and this feels like another big turning point. Uh, as a listener, this feels like uh, another big turning point for the band. And I think it's kind of unusual for that to come in the form of a covers record. But I think if you take a listen to this song, uh, as a listener, you'll understand. This is a medley of uh, the Neil Young song, Ohio, and Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix's Machine Gun. Yes. your brothers think about i mean like of all the changes that were happening in uh r&b as r&b and soul were becoming uh, were getting heavier and and becoming funk like mostly it was not heading towards guitar solos you know what i mean Mm -hmm. right so what did your older brothers think about you coming in at however old you were 18 years old or something and saying like oh you know what this song needs just like a really ripping solo (laughs) Well, you know, the songs we were doing, if you're going to do Ohio Machine Gun, which is, a, uh, you know, which is Ohio, Neil Young song, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and you know, Machine Gun is Jimi Hendrix. If you're going to do that, you know, it's going to have guitar on it. And the, the both songs are very passionate in terms of their feeling. And uh, it was only logical from our point of view that since we don't think of ourselves as being categorized, it was only logical that we were going to go where we felt led. By the time we got to that lady, it was like, you guys are a brand new group. You know, you got this brand new sound. I'll finish my conversation with Ernie Isley of the Isley Brothers after a break. We'll talk about his relationship with his friend, sometime bandmate and sometime housemate Jimi Hendrix. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. What's the meaning of work and when does being an amateur trump experience? The TED Radio Hour is a journey through fascinating ideas, astonishing inventions, fresh approaches to old problems, and new ways to think and create. 
find the TED Radio Hour podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Jesse Thorne here. I'm taking Bullseye on the Road in November. It's our world tour of several American cities. Get your tickets now while you can. They're going fast. Come see me and William H. Macy and Barney Frank and Tavi Gevinson, John Hodgman, uh, the director of the Mutter Museum, who's going to do medical experiments on me, apparently, uh, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, so many more music, comedy, and interviews at every tour stop. Go to bullseyetour.com to get your tickets. You will not want to miss this. If you're in Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., or our own great city of Los Angeles, California, bullseyetour.com to get tickets. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ernie Isley, the guitarist for the Isley Brothers, who made hits like Twist and Shout and Who's That Lady? He started gigging with the band when he was just 14 years old. The Isley Brothers have a new box set of their work, the Isley Brothers, the RCA Victor, and Teaneck Album Masters. You and your brothers, uh, Ernie Isley, were among the few groups that got to play for real on uh, Soul Train. Most people were yes. most people were most people were singing or lip syncing to tracks. Um, and we have a little clip of you guys playing that lady a year after it came out on Soul Train in 1974. It's a pretty amazing performance, Ernie. I feel like when you're listening to it, you can almost hear the engineer at Soul Train uh, being like, <laughs> oh, geez, the guitar is soloing, like trying to look for yeah. the fader for the guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that song turned a lot of heads and it uh, certainly made us different from any other group that was out there, a vocal group, particularly if that's how you started. I mean, we were still morphing into uh, wherever we were going. And uh, that song was uh, certainly a, uh, a part of that growth. Well, let's hear a little bit of the Isley Brothers and Fight the Power from 1975. Time is through the Listen to that song, or watch you guys play. Uh, watch you guys play on Soul Train. Um, what impresses me is the way that you synthesize these different aesthetics. You know, you're bringing all these sounds together. Like that lady is a really sweet ballad 
that is set off by you giving a really intense guitar solo. You know, Fight the Power is a really heavy, uh, really heavy funk record that is set off by, you know, the kind of vocal back and forth that, you know, your brothers could have done in 1962 uh, mm-hmm. in the chorus. Was, you know, how, to what extent was that, a, to what extent was that synthesis conscious and to what extent was it just the group of people that you were? I think we were just going with it. Uh, in, in terms of uh, trying to describe, I mean, Fight the Power was and is just something that everybody at some point has to do. You wind up dealing with something that is resisting your personal wishes or your will. And you're going to have to fight that thing. You're not going to lay down to it. It represents... a uh, a call to uh, personal freedom, personal expression. It doesn't mean that the other person has to like it. I mean, who cares? I'll go in my own style, at my own pace, as my actual self, without apology. Why don't we listen to an Isley Brothers song from before my guest Ernie Isley joined the band uh, when he was just like a 10 or a 12-year-old with Jimi Hendrix. Um, and testify. I think it is a pretty remarkable thing to be able to say, oh yeah, when I was 11 years old, Jimi Hendrix lived at my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was cool, you know, I... Sitting in study hall when I was like, you know, 16, it's like they're talking about all your experiences. Like, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, <laughs> without his record, I am. You know, I already knew who he was. And, uh, you know, I already knew that he played very well, obviously. I never heard anybody play like that, play the guitar like that. And uh, like when Ed Sullivan said uh, for the very first time, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, you know. I'm on one side of the couch. My younger brother Marvin's on the opposite side, and in the middle is Jimi Hendrix himself. And but there was no clap of thunder or, or nothing like that. And uh, a few days went by, and there was a meeting with with everybody in the band. And my elder brother Kelly took the floor, and one of the things he said was, "You know, these guys, this whole Beatle thing—they have changed everything. This is no hype. This is legit." And uh, you know, I don't know about what's going to happen with Connie Francis or Paul Lanka or Bobby Rydell or Fabian. I think we're going to be all right because I understand they do shout and twist and shout. Now, they have two guitar players, but we got Jimmy. And when he said that, I looked over at Jimmy, and he was grinning at that remark ear to ear like the Cheshire Cat. <laughs> Because it was true, you know, and and uh, you know, you never know who you're, who you're, you know, who you're rubbing elbows with. They did get him his very first Fender guitar, and his very first professional recording session was with the Isley Brothers. It must have been remarkable for you as a teenager when he became one of the most 
important and acclaimed rock players in the world, it was sort of like human proof positive, this guy that had come out of your house and become a rock and roll <laughs> god. And not just, not an, you know, had broken beyond the boundaries of R&B even. Yes. Yes. He, um, he came by the house with Kelly like a, a little before Monterey Pop. He came in the house and Kelly said, Marvin, Ernie, Jimmy is killing them in England. And we're like, England? What's he doing over there? <laughs> and Marvin looked on, is that Jimmy? Because he was dressed different. You know, he had velvet pants with bell bottoms. He wasn't wearing pat leather shoes. He had boots. He had a ruffled shirt. He had a hat. He had a vest. He had rings on every finger. He walked down the hallway or something like that. He sounded like a cowboy, like Shane or something. <laughs> and, you know, you look at him and say, yeah, that's still him. He's just dressed different. You pick up a guitar and start playing. It's like, yeah, that's definitely him. That's <laughs> that's him. So you know, it was, if he'd be playing, you know, we'd it he could play and be playing, and it's like we would laugh not because it was funny, because because it was good. You know, he was that good. You'd be like, like as a kid, you know, you see somebody do something, and they do it so well, you'd be like, man, it makes you laugh. Man, I wish I could do that. Isn't that great? You know, but he was the only one playing like that, and uh, um, the fact that he uh, went on to um, do what he did. So, Lord have mercy. We had a show in 1969 at Yankee Stadium. Easter thing was out, and my brother Kelly called him and said, "Jimmy, we want you to June. Jimmy, we want you to do the show with us, festival show." He said, "Oh man, really?" Oh, I'd love to, but let me speak to my people. I get back to you. And a few days went by, and he called back. He said, Kelly, you know, I'd love to do it, but I got this commitment in August to something called the uh, Woodstock Arts and Music Festival. Woodstock Arts and Music Festival in uh, upstate New York on some kind of farm. And uh, the promoters are concerned that if I play Yankee Stadium concert, that it might hurt ticket sales up there. So they don't want me to do it. <laughs> of course, obviously, he didn't have a crystal ball either. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, you, you, it, it's, uh, it's uh, really, like, spiritually uh, uh, an embrace to have these kind of uh, shared uh, experiences. You were just starting your own career when Jimi Hendrix died. How did it? How did it hit you when it happened? Oh, 1970. I was 18. I was on the college campus of C.W. Post College, part of Long Island University in New York, and I was coming down from the music building, and. Somebody said, I heard somebody say something like, did you hear Jimi Hendrix just died? I'm like, get out of here. You know, that's a publicity stunt. That's not, no, no. And uh, I was thinking about um, the whole thing that that year had been going on with. Paul was dead. If you play the record backwards and you hear that Paul was dead, you know, that's the show business. It's the record company trying to sell some records, whatever, but it's not true. And I got to my room and turned on the radio, and I heard that. And it's kind of, you know, just a shock. 
because because uh, it was a shock. It's like, how does something like that, you know, some things happen. They happen real quick and where you don't have a chance to say, wait a minute or stop or hold it or bye. <laughs> you know, it just happened real quick. So that was kind of weird that that happened. And, uh, you know, all of us, and the brothers, we just looked upon that as like weird that that, that, that would happen. And not too long after that, too, uh, Janis Joplin passed away. So it made it just weirder. Did it uh, change? Did it change the way that you thought about working in music? Mm, you know what? It changes. It changes. The, this is life, first and foremost. It's life. And I think of Jimi Hendrix as a person because that's how I knew him. That's how I was introduced to him. There's a lot of other people that can relate to the icon, to the statue, you know, to all of that huff and puff stuff that comes out of being in the music business. But uh, when it, when I think of him, I don't I don't think of that at all. I think about somebody watching Saturday morning cartoons and uh, Super Chicken and uh, Bugs Bunny playing the guitar like it's a toy. Uh, playing it all the time. I didn't know why he played so much. He didn't He didn't need to practice. He was that good. I read an interview that you, Ernie, and, and your and your brother, uh, Marvin, and uh, Chris Jasper did in the mid-'70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could almost... There was this part, I don't, and I don't remember which one of the three of you was saying it, um, but I think it might have been you, Ernie, uh, where you were saying, you know, that that twist and shout stuff, that's not us. We're not going around shouting woo. Um, <laughs> and I thought it must have been it, it must have been interesting uh, to be in a situation where you had these older brothers who were such brilliant and talented musicians, such brilliant and gifted singers and songwriters. Um, but that you and your cohort cohort were as well, you know, and you were you were bound together by f- by a lifetime of being a family. But you were also, you know, you were also sort of two groups. You know what I mean? You were this trio yes. that you had played with in high school, and these older these older brothers who you saw when they were home from the road. You know, mm-hmm. and. I wonder what that was like for you to be to be these kind of these two teams merged into one. Oh, you had the seasoning in terms of experience, personal experience in the business. And at the same time, you had the spirit of we're not going to be confined by what we've already performed. When you have a when you're blessed with the longevity and uh, all of the different musical changes that uh, rock and roll has gone through, uh, it's nearly impossible in terms of a show to um, fully express um, the, the entire resume. It's a very thick, Isley Brothers are a very thick musical filet mignon, you know, and we're trying to have that bad boy well done with no pink showing. And if you like steak, it's like, 
That's what our music is. It's gonna, it's gonna have some, some flavor. Well, Ernie Isley, I really appreciate you uh, coming out and being on Bullseye. It was really an honor to get to talk to you. So it's been, it's great. So this is kind of like therapy. It's wonderful. Well, let's go out on some beautiful music from the Isley Brothers' new box set. My guest has been Ernie Isley. Here's Harvest for the World from the album, the same name. A nation planted, so concerned with gain. As the seasons come and go, greater grows the pain. And far too many feeling the strain. For when will there be a harvest for the world? Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. So recently, the Pope came to visit. You probably heard about it. There was a lot of excitement, controversy, grand oratory, big hats. But I'm here to tell you a secret. Anytime I heard the phrase, Pope's visit, you know, like on the news or whatever, all I could think of was this. Oh, mama, just to think, the Pope, he's coming to eat here. That's Ken Marino from the 90s sketch comedy group The State, doing basically the worst Italian accent in the history of the world, except possibly for the Italian accent that his castmate Carrie Kenny does right afterwards. I'm so proud. The restaurant looks so nice. <laughs> and everybody put on their best white suits. <laughs> so nice. So that is uh, the setup for this sketch. Basically, is just a bunch of ridiculously, maybe insanely, over the, like, alternate universe... Italian restaurant servers, and they're all wearing white suits, and it's a white restaurant with white tablecloths, and they're sitting down to eat, and they're going to eat spaghetti. He'll be here soon. So, let's get a quick bite to eat, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Here's the sauce. Basically, that's all that happens in this sketch. They just dump things on each other and yell. It is the best. Best of the water, Vincenzo! This is no good! It starts with red sauce and spilled wine, but then within like 20 seconds, they're dumping barrels of oil on each other's heads. Basically, 150 seconds of people pouring crap on each other. Oh, and also uh, the Pope. Comes. And here comes the Pope. Hey, I'm the Pope. Hey, the Pope. And they literally open a fire hose on him. We got you a gift of the Pope. Vincenzo, give it a Pope. This may be the stupidest comedy sketch ever written. 
and I love it so much. Anyway, it's important for essays to have lessons at the end. So the sacred and the profane, etc., etc., etc. Go watch this sketch. You're welcome. That's my outshot. Science is such a mess, little popa. That's okay. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abarian X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Editing help this week from Chris Berube. Thanks, Chris. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Neil Rausch at NPR New York and Mike Schrand at St. Louis Public Radio for their engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Listen, we're embarking on a bullseye tour very shortly in November, and there are some tickets still available. Come see me. Talk to William H. Macy, Barney Frank, Mission of Burma, Tavi Gevinson. Uh, do my talk, Make Your Thing, in Manhattan with John Hodgman. Talk to the director of the Mutter Museum. He's going to do weird medical experiments on me. Uh, I'm talking to Ray Suarez and uh, Dan Deacon's doing a music show. Uh, music, comedy, interviews at every single tour stop. Go to bullseyetour.com to get your tickets. That's bullseyetour.com. Boston, Philly, D.C., New York, uh, Brooklyn, Los Angeles. It's going to be awesome. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham, who did an amazing job hosting this show a couple weeks ago. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.